Well, we're, uh, we're starting a series uh, along with this series is uh, just a little booklet that you can pick up at the welcome counter as you leave. Uh, this, this is something that you can keep with you through, uh, the, through the Bible in seven weeks series. Uh, you don't have to have it for this morning, so you don't, everybody just run and grab it real quick, uh, or don't run and grab it, but you can get it after service. Uh, I'm a little, I'll be honest with you, I'm a little insecure about this series, uh, and I'll tell you why. Partly because I, um, I believe in my heart that, that what we're about to go through in the next seven weeks is something that as a congregation we absolutely need. Uh, that we have many in our in our church who, uh, some of which who have never read the Old Testament, some who have never um, read any of the Scripture. They 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 love Jesus. They they uh, they want to uh, to to do the things of Jesus. They want to walk in His footsteps and all those things, but just don't really have a context or a knowledge and an understanding of 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 the why behind it. Uh, and part of that, I get it, is the Bible's, it's a little intimidating. It's so big. It's, it's so full of information and history and all of those things. It's like what applies, what doesn't apply, and all of those things. And, uh, but the reason why I'm insecure is because I feel, uh, I sense that our congregation, our church, our family needs it. But I don't know if you know that you need it. Uh, and so, and so uh, I put my glasses on today because this series is more of a classroomish series. Uh, this is more of a, a teaching, if you will. Last week, super inspirational, at least I hope it was. Uh, this week is going to be more informational than inspirational. Uh, I, the question is, how do we do it? How in seven weeks, somebody asked, why didn't you take longer than seven weeks to, to get through the whole of the Bible? Because you won't last longer than seven weeks. Uh, I know, you know, seven weeks is about the max that we can uh, do a series and have everybody be engaged as a part of that. But I got to thinking about, like, how do you take the whole of Scripture and wrap it up uh, into seven weeks? And then I got to thinking about uh, all of these ridiculous amounts of Marvel comic movies that we have. Right, there's like a thousand of them. Uh, every time I turn around, there's another sequel, another Iron Man two, and Ant Man two, and this Man two, and this Woman two, and all, all of this stuff. And uh, and then I thought, well, if you had never seen any of the individual movies, but then you were going to go to an Avengers movie and where they're all together, like how how would you get caught up? You don't have time. You should not have time uh, to to binge watch all of those movies. Uh, and, and yet you're going to go to the Avenger movie and be caught up somehow. And, uh, and then I got to thinking, what if you were to do it in 60 seconds? Like you only had 60 seconds to get caught up. Well, somebody actually did it. I want you to take a look at this. Here to get you up to speed in 60 seconds or less. So there's a super secret government agency called S.H.I.E.L.D. run by Agent Nick Fury. When Loki, the Norse god of mischief, starts well causing mischief, he recruits a super group to fight the foes no single superhero can withstand. He calls them the Avengers mostly because it sounds cool. Now over the years, the Avengers have gone through more members than Menudo, but right now we really only have to worry about seven of them. Iron Man, a.k.a. Tony Stark, billionaire arms dealer to his self-made justice bot, picks up most of the checks. Captain America, a.k.a. Steve Rogers, genetically modified World War II veteran. The Hulk, a.k.a. Bruce Banner, turns into a monster when he gets mad, frequently on probation on account of all the smashing. Thor, a.k.a. Thor, Norse god of thunder, sent by his dad to live 
live in a human body as a lesson in humility. Luckily, it's this body. Black Widow, aka Natasha Romanoff, a spy in a cat suit. Any questions? Hawkeye, aka Clint Barton, the world's greatest marksman. Totally has the hots for Natasha. Now, at the end of the Thor movie, Loki gets conveniently sucked into a black hole. But it turns out he's found his way to the other side of the galaxy and teamed up with an alien race to come back and take over Earth and gain control of the cosmic cube. An infinite energy source currently collecting dust in Nick Fury's cabinet of curiosities. So it's time for Nick to wrangle together his dysfunctional family of gods, monsters, and award-winning actors to protect Earth. And we think the odds are in their favor. Who cares if Loki's got an alien army? We've got Robert Downey Jr. I have successfully privatized world peace. So I show that to you uh, to give you an insight as to what the next seven weeks are going to be like. Just a lot of information coming at you really fast, and, uh, and yet I know that we need this. Uh, my hope is that uh, when we get through the Bible in seven weeks, that we will have a, uh, an appetite for more of Scripture in our life, and uh, we'll have a desire to get into it and read more about the stories that we just touch uh, the surface on uh, in, in these next uh, seven weeks. So, so here's the game plan. Uh, each week, we'll take uh, a part of the Bible, and we'll just kind of walk through it. Uh, and it's going to be, as I said, a little uh, class, kind of like a classroom. This is a teaching. This is the, the teacher side of my gift mix is coming out in full force. Uh, but by the end, I, we'll be introduced to each of the 66 books of the Bible, and we'll have, have a pretty good gist of each one of them. I want to read to you kind of the theme scriptures for uh, this series, Romans chapter 15, verse 4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance, and that's what it's going to take to get through this today, is some endurance. And uh, I, I, I debated on the light situation. I thought if I lower the lights, then I can't see you sleeping. But maybe if we, we raise the lights, then maybe you won't sleep. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Uh, through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. That's, that's the purpose of this. And then Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet. It's a, it's a light into my path. Like, this is our guidebook for our life. So that's why we're doing this. I, I decided that in 2018, I would stop assuming. Uh, I finally got the joke, and I stopped assuming that everyone just knows and understands Scripture and uh, has a healthy understanding and knowledge of, of what Scripture is. And the Scripture that keeps sticking with me this year is without uh, a, or with a lack of knowledge, my people will perish, that, uh, that I want us as a church to have an understanding and a knowledge of what the Word of God actually says for us. Uh, that it actually has things that are applicable to our life. And what I hope is that as we go through this, you will see this running thread of relationship and, and, and of community that God has created us for. So some interesting facts about the Bible. Uh, again, th these are in your notes, but uh, you don't have a lot of notes this morning because uh, there's no way I'm going to fit all of the information into uh, two sheets of paper. But but I will give you some. Write it down. Uh, this is all being recorded. If you want to go back and listen to it, if, if there's information in here you'd like to, to be reminded of. Uh, the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. Uh, more than 5 billion copies have been sold to date, and another 100 million are sold every year. Uh, it's the most translated book of all time. 
uh, with translations in nearly 2,500 different languages. Uh, it's the most influential book of all time, not just culturally in terms of culture or civilization, but in terms of people's individual lives. It has a, an impact. It, uh, it's in, it's, it influences us in how we live. Uh, to not understand or, and know what's in Scripture, in my opinion, uh, is, is a complete oversight on our part as followers of Jesus. That no matter where you're at in this Christian faith, we should have at least some understanding of what the Bible has to say. So we're going to go through it, and we're going to begin in the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The most uh, fun, uh, enjoyable, lighthearted books of all of the Bible. Uh, The first five books are... Uh, referred to as uh, the Pentateuch. Uh, And the reason why it's referred to that is because the word Pentateuch means uh, five books. It's pretty logical, right? So five books, first five books, Pentateuch. It's also referred to as the Torah, which means uh, the law. Uh, These books were written and compiled by a man named Moses. Uh, Many of you probably are familiar with him. Uh, probably between 1446 and 1406 BC. So here's the story of the first five books. I'm going to give you an overview of it. I'm going to give you kind of the 30,000 foot view, and then we're going to drill down just a little bit in each of the five books uh, as an overview. Uh, and then you'll wake up, you'll grab your kids, and you'll, you'll go home, right? All right, the Bible stops, starts off by telling us that in the beginning, God God, one God, created the earth. Uh, this is important for us because there was a God, an eternal God, that's big. Not, not a lot of gods in which uh, we see in the Avengers, actually, uh, but not a, not a lot of gods, one God. And he's personal, not impersonal, like some sort of energy force or something along those lines, but he is a, a personal God. And that's a huge stake to drive in the ground of our intellectual, theological perspective, that we serve one God. Now, the other part of our God is that it says in, in Genesis that when he created, God said, let us make man. So the first of many references to one of the amazing teachings in the Bible that our God is triune, uh, that he's, his very nature is Trinity, three persons, one God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Not three gods, but three persons, one God, which is why later on in the Bible we see Jesus praying to the Father. We see Jesus referring to God the Father. And and then later on, we see Jesus referring to himself as as God, God the Son. Jesus on this earth, wandering this earth as God the Son. And then when Jesus ascends up into heaven, he leaves a helper for us, God the Holy Spirit. Now, right now you're thinking in your head, how am I going to get through 35 more minutes of this? But you're also thinking, I can't wrap my head around that. Like this Trinity thing is like, what does that even mean? And here's the the truth of God, is that there is mystery in this, right? That 
that the word mystery actually means not to be fully comprehended or fully explained. It, it doesn't mean irrational. In fact, I don't even know if this is a word, but it's super rational. It's, it's something beyond human knowledge, beyond our understanding. This means that when it comes to God, there will always be a sense of the mysterious, which I am perfectly okay with. I'm fine with that. Uh, Because if I can fully comprehend and fully understand the God of this universe, then he's really no God at all. He's just a a small version of God. He's whatever my brain could understand or develop. So the mystery surrounding God as Trinity really isn't even the headline. The, The headline is what it tells us about God. Here's the headline. God is community. God is relationship. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, they are community. And here is the beauty of this. We are created in his image. We are created in the image of God, made to be in community with them, made to be in community with one another. Uh, There's a couple authors, Brent Curtis and John Eldridge, they talk about this idea of the Trinity in their book, The Sacred Romance, and listen to how they describe it. Think of your best moments of love or friendship or creative partnership, the best times with family or friends around the dinner table, your richest conversations, the acts of simple kindness that sometimes seem like the only thing that makes life worth living. It's like the the shimmer of sunlight on a lake. These are the reflections of the love that flows among the Trinity. We long for intimacy as human beings because we are made in the image of perfect intimacy. Not only is that longing in our hearts, but it's the very reason for our creation. It's what the Bible then continues to talk about when Uh, The love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit can't be contained, that it has to be shared, right? And and I think we know what that looks like. When when, When you recognize a beauty about something, if you see a picture or a sunset or a sunrise or uh, something of of an amazing thing, you want to grab somebody and you want to show them that. And that's what happens when the Trinity says, We've got to share this with someone, and God creates Adam. They want to share this intimacy, this love with someone. It's how 14th century philosopher and theologian Meister Eckhart writes when he says, we were created out of the laughter of the Trinity. See, we were made for relationship with God, but we're also made for relationship with each other, and that's really what last last week was all about. It's about family. It's about being in relationship with one another. So God creates Adam. The Bible says that it was not good that Adam be alone, and so he creates Eve, and and the woman was created to help the man out of his aloneness so that together they could enter into relationship with each other and with God. This relationship, this relationship with God, this relationship with one another was an intimate relationship. It was open. It was honest. It was vulnerable. It was real. It was transparent. It was unified. 
And I would argue that if you, we live in a culture where we think that we have relationship, we think that we're in relationship with other people, but I would argue that if it's not real, if it's, if it's not honest and open and vulnerable and transparent, my question is how much of a relationship is that really? Are we being open? Are we being real and transparent with, and vulnerable with one another? That's where relationship really is established. So God creates this paradise for Adam and Eve. He says, it's all yours. Run free. Do as you will. Enjoy it. Just don't eat from that tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So why? Why put a tree there? It's like a temptation, right? It's like, why would you do that, God? Why? It's like you, everything was fine, and then you put a tree there. Well, God set aside one tree that actually says something that lies at the heart of our relationship with him. God creates an opportunity. He creates a choice, a choice by which, uh, for your information, we still have. This choice that we can either let God be God or we can try and pretend as though we are God. See, there was something that by putting that tree in the garden, there was something of a choice to be made. There was the opportunity for them to choose to honor, willingly give themselves to him in relationship. But it was called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It could have been anything. It could have been a stump. It could have been a rock, the rock of good and evil. I don't know. But it could have been anything, but it was a tree. And this tree gave them the opportunity to choose a relationship with God. They didn't do it. I, it's, you know, you guys knew that, right? So they, they didn't do it. They, they decided that they were going to be God. And, and so that then led to what theologians call the fall, which then led to ongoing disruption of community and relationship. And everything's been going to hell in a handbasket since, right? I mean, that's, that's the thing. And these growing patterns and results of that first sin led to sin after sin after sin. So that's Genesis chapter 1 through 11. So did God give up on us? Did he just say, well, you know, he could have just wadded it up earth and threw it in the trash can and then started over, right? It's like they, didn't, they chose poorly, but... I got to find some that are going to choose wisely. No, he, he actually didn't quit on us. In Genesis 12, we find that he calls out a man named Abram. And through Abram, he begins the people of Israel's relationship with God. And we see here that God called them into, again, here's this theme. This, he calls them into community where he reestablishes this picture of what a relationship with God is supposed to look like and what a relationship with each other is supposed to look like. God promised Abram that he would make him into a great nation, which is why he's called Abram. But then uh, he actually, uh, or which is why God changed his name from Abram, which is the father of one people, to Abraham, the father of many. So God used Abraham and the people of Israel as kind of this picture, this bridge uh, onto the human scene to call back his people to himself. This, this picture of love and grace. Uh, the rest of the opening books of Moses tell the story of those people who uh, are known as the Jewish people. 
and particularly their development from a single family to an entire nation. After Abraham, they were led by a guy named Isaac and then on to Jacob. And through their lives, we learn that the nature and the character of God as he reveals himself to them and and shapes them as people. And then a true turning point comes with a guy named Joseph. So Joseph uh, is a Jew. He, He goes into Egypt. He's taken into Egypt. He raises up into the government, into a high position of government and authority. Uh, he brings the Jewish people into Egypt, put, puts them into a position where they could prosper, grow, and develop into a nation. And here's an interesting fact. About 70 people, 70 Jewish people went into Egypt, and when they exited Egypt, about 3 million. So it actually took place. They went in as a family. They came out as a nation. That brought about one of the most famous periods of all biblical history. We're talking plagues. We're talking uh, what one might consider genocide, murder. We're talking uh, the parting of the Red Sea. We're just all all the fun stuff. That's the only book that we really read because we're like, this is interesting. Moses leads the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery. They are now a nation And he would give them commandments, laws, rules, a structure to live by, a holiness that would mark them from every other culture and people. That's how the first five books end, with the law of God in hand, the promised land under their feet, and God's plan to call the world back to himself, rooted and ready to expand. So let's take each of the books and just briefly talk about each of them. And hopefully, when we're done, you'll have a little bit better understanding of the Old Testament. In Genesis, there's really no doubt that uh, Genesis gets the most press, right? Uh, it's pretty hard to compete with the creation of the world. It, that, I mean, that's how it starts. Uh, that's what Genesis means. It means beginning, It means origin. It's the book of origins or beginnings. And it tells us that at the beginning of the world, of the human race, of sin, of family life, of civilization, of the nations in the Hebrew race, in Genesis, some of the most amazing stories and personalities in all of the Bible take place. From Adam to Cain and Abel to Noah and the flood to the Tower of Babel. Uh, Abraham to Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and, and on and on. I mean, it's, just, it's, a, it's an amazing, amazing book. But it brings up some questions, right? Uh, when it talks about the creation of the world, uh, we often hear the, the question of, you know, what do we believe about creation? And, and I'm not going to dig into the, into the weeds of the science and all that stuff because this is an overview. This is not a... Uh, uh, it feels like a lecture, but it's not an in-depth lecture into the weeds on creation. But what I can tell you that Genesis does say is that God did it, and he says it was good. It doesn't say how he did it. It just says that God did it, and it was good. It doesn't spell out. He doesn't try to make it some scientific process or a biology text. All Genesis says is God did it, and it was good. So when it comes to creation, that's really all we can get out of it, that God did it, and it was good. The other question that comes up at times is, uh, especially from our kids, is like, where is the Garden of Eden? Like, 
Where was it at? Was it beautiful? I don't know. I mean, you be the judge. Here's the thing is, uh, the Garden of Eden would have taken place in in a place called Mesopotamia. Uh, This is also where the Tower of Babel was built, where Abraham was born, where Isaac got his wife, uh, and where Jacob lived for a a little while. Uh, But there's no sense that, that the Garden of Eden can be found, right? That it ended with the fall and the banishment of Adam and Eve, that when that was cut off, it was done. But if you want to know where Mesopotamia was, it's essentially modern-day Iraq as well as northeastern Syria, some parts of southeastern Turkey, and a bit of southwestern Iran, which I've flown over that, and it doesn't look like the Garden of Eden. Um, Exodus. The book of Exodus, uh, is this is the one that everybody makes a movie about, right? This is the fun one. Uh, this is the one, again, as I said before, has, uh, you know, the, uh, all of these plagues and miracles and deliverance and outcasts and rescue. All of this stuff takes place, and it's amazing and special effects. And, uh, but at its, at its heart, Exodus is the story of God rescuing his people. And this is really important to us because this is the beginning picture of what God has done in your life. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is a a picture of what God has done for you. Uh, The word Exodus means the way out, and much of it centers around this guy named Moses, who uh, wasn't anything uh, uh, particularly amazing other than the fact that he was obedient uh, to God. As I mentioned earlier, there was this time uh, a long time ago where the Jewish people had come under slavery of the Egyptians. And it took 10 plagues from God before the stubborn heart of the Egyptian leaders would finally release them out of slavery. Uh, God didn't want to send the plagues. God didn't enjoy seeing them tortured or deal with frogs or locusts or blood in the water. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't some uh, meanie in the sky trying to do this. But listen, he loves us too much not to do everything he can to get our attention to turn us around. And God wasn't only showing his love for the Jewish people. Listen to this, and this is oftentimes missed in this story, is he was trying to reach out to the Egyptians and soften their hearts as well. But they wouldn't respond. So each new plague grew in gravity and force, one after the other, with no effect and what you find in antiquity, the Bible teaches that, uh, that there was a way to atone, a way to receive forgiveness for our sins. It was in the form of sacrifice. And we don't really understand sacrifice, at least uh, uh, in the context of this, but there, there had to be a blood sacrifice that would take place. And the reason why is because God wanted people to see the severity of their sin. I think we, we minimize the severity and the, and the impact that sin has on our life. But when you're having to kill your sheep because of your sin, when you have to, when you have to sacrifice your li- a, a, a livestock because you sin, now all of a sudden you begin, and it's a, it's a bloody, gruesome process. But if you've ever lived in sin, if you've ever experienced a life of sin, and all of us have, you know that it can be a gruesome, bloody, messy process. 
He also wanted us to see his love, his forgiveness, his mercy. So the sacrifice was a substitute for the sinner. It bore the sinner's guilt. It's where we get the word uh, scapegoat, right? They, uh, on the Day of Atonement, one of the Jewish festivals, they would, uh, they would take a goat and they would take, uh, uh, figuratively take all of the sins of the people and they would, the, the priest would lay it on that goat and they would send it off into the wilderness to die. That's where we get that term scape, scapegoat. Now, in the case of the Israelites coming back to the Passover, what we find is that anyone on the 10th plague, because after the first nine, they didn't do anything, but on the 10th plague, he gave them an option. He gave them a choice. He said, if you would take a spotless lamb and you would sacrifice it and you would take the blood from that lamb and you would put it over your doorpost, whether you're an Egyptian or whether you're a Jew, if you do that, the, the death angel will pass over and not take the firstborn child. See, there was a sacrifice that was offered to God that would finally, this is such a clear picture of a pending sacrifice. The sacrifices that we're taking in this moment were not going to ever fully bridge the gap between us and God. That eventually there would come one who would, and his name is Jesus. So in the case of the Egyptians, it was open for everybody, God's mercy available for all, and I would remind you, God's mercy is available to all of us. But they didn't turn to the one true God for mercy, even after seeing all of these other plagues unleashed on them, and so the angel came, the firstborn of Egyptians were largely killed. But those who had covered their homes, who who had walked in this obedience, uh, their children were saved. And it had such an impact on the leaders of Egypt that they finally let them go. They let the Israelites go. Jews have been celebrating the festival of Passover, this moment, for years. Hundreds and hundreds of years as a reminder of God's deliverance from death and the freedom that came from the deliverance through the blood of a lamb. Now let's fast forward just a moment. And let's, let's talk about Jesus. Jesus on Passover gathers his disciples together in the upper room and they're having the Passover meal, right? They're, they're remembering this time in which God spared their people. And Jesus is looking at these Jewish men and he's gathering them together in Luke chapter two. And it says, Jesus took the bread, gave thanks and broke it. And he gave it to him saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. He is telling these Jewish people who have done this thing this breaking of the bread and this drinking of the cup, this very act for years of their life, thinking it meant one thing, and now Jesus is saying, I'm telling you what this means now. Now I'm telling you that that, that this wine and bread has a new meaning. It's to represent me, the unblemished, spotless lamb that that would be sacrificed. And those who are marked by my blood, 
would be freed from the slavery of their sin. And they'll be passed over from the spiritual death that comes from sin. Jesus said, from now on, I want you to do this. I want you to do this in remembrance of me. This is the new memorial of the Passover. Those people who are set apart, part of the family of God, when we as a church family, as we come to the tables, we have tables in here uh, usually around the first Sunday of the month, and when we come to the table and we receive that little cup of juice and that little gluten-free nasty cracker and we bring it, Back to our chair, what we're doing is we're remembering that we have been freed, that that we are no longer slaves to sin because of the sacrifice of the spotless lamb. It is, in essence, what Jesus is doing with his disciples and reminding them, I want you to remember me every time you drink, every time you eat. This would have been absolutely mind-blowing to them, that the church is now the new Israel. And through Jesus, the Passover had reached its ultimate fulfillment and celebration. Everything that started with Moses and Exodus, everything that the Passover meal looked forward to, now had been fulfilled. And like the original Passover, it's designed to help us remember a single event. And that event is the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And everybody, we ought to be really, really thankful for that. Number three, Leviticus. This is my favorite. We get, to, we get Genesis because Genesis is beginning. We get to Exodus. Exodus means exit. Leviticus, well, this is about the priestly tribe of Israel, right? Their service in the tabernacle, Uh, It's been said that in Genesis, we see humans ruined. Uh, In Exodus, we see humans redeemed. And then in Leviticus, we see humans worshiping God as community. So the importance of Leviticus, I used to, honestly, in my Bible, yearly Bible reading, I just kind of glaze it over, kind of skip past it. But but I've kind of had this conviction that there's actually more in Leviticus for the understanding of how we worship God in community. So the question oftentimes, though, that comes from this particular book is all of the rules, all of the dietary codes and conduct and all that, do they apply to us today? And the answer is yes. And the answer is no. It's both. There are two kinds of teaching in the opening books of the Bible. There's a whole body of teaching on ritual unhealthness or uncleanness, uncleanness, and a whole body of teaching on clear immoral behavior. One was time-bound, caught up with the sacrificial systems and the processes of people uh, in order to be fulfilled uh, in Christ. What you couldn't eat, what you couldn't touch, what you could touch, it, all of those things are no longer relevant. But the other body of teaching is timeless. That, that's this moral teaching, the, uh, like the Ten Commandments. Those are the things that, that for us still apply, right? We inherently know you can't kill somebody, right? That's part of the Ten Commandments. Do not murder. There's this clear moral teachings that we see that's for our age today. 
Uh, and then five numbers. Lot, it's got a lot of numbers. Uh, it, it carries its name because of all of the, the number of census, census, sensi, censuses, whatever, all of the lists that it contains. But it mostly is about the wandering of the people uh, of the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. Right? Their, their route to the promised land wasn't a straight one. They were led there right away, sent some spies in. Uh, ten of them came back, uh, said, no way, we're not doing it. Two, two said, yeah, we're good. There's a song about it. Twelve men went to spy on Canaan. Ten were bad and two were good. No one? Yes? It's my favorite song. Twelve men went to spy on Canaan. Ten were bad and two were good. No? Do we teach this down the kids' hall, Julie? We're going to be changing that. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So they decide that they're not going to go into the promised land. Instead, they wander 40 years in the wilderness. Uh, Kelly and I just got back from Israel. We were in uh, the Middle Eastern desert, and I'm telling you, it was the longest 40 years of their life. It is desolate. Numbers uh, revolves around five names, Moses, the great leader, Aaron, the high priest, Miriam, who was their sister, Joshua and Caleb, who were the two spies that were good. Uh, and then Joshua would actually end up being Moses' successor. Uh, that was for 5 Deuteronomy. Brings us to the final book, a book that details the power of obedience and what happens when we walk in disobedience. It's really a pretty remarkable book. We, we often don't give it the the credit that it deserves, uh, Jesus did. Uh, it's one of the favorite books of Jesus because he quoted it often. Uh, this book is really Moses' farewell. He's dying, uh, and before his death, he, he writes some things down. And in his farewell address, he, he's got three parts to it. He, he looks back to the history, and he reminds his people from where they came and the importance of walking in faithfulness. And then he looks up and reminds his people of the law that God had given. In fact, Deuteronomy means second law. He reminds his people of the law that was given for them. And then he looks forward. He looks out. And he reminds them of the great penalty of disobedience and how faithfulness to God was everything for their future. Jesus loved Deuteronomy. It was the primary Old Testament book by which he quoted. I'll give you a couple examples of that. When Jesus talked about loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind, it's Deuteronomy. Uh, when the story of Satan himself coming to tempt Jesus and uh, and he says to Jesus, uh, the account is from Matthew, uh, during the time the devil came and said to him, if you are the son of God, tell the stones to be loaves of bread. And Jesus tells him, no, the scriptures say people don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's quoting Deuteronomy. Uh, then the devil takes him to the holy city, to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple. It says, if you're the son of God, jump off. The scripture says your angels will protect you and not harm you. They'll hold up your hands. And Jesus responds, the scriptures say you must not test the Lord your God. Deuteronomy. And then the devil takes him to the peak of a high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world. 
and their glory. I'll give it all to you, he says, if you'll kneel down and worship him. And Jesus says to him, you must, not worship, uh, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and became very hungry. I would argue hangry. Right? That he's also quoting Deuteronomy. And I think we, we think, well, man, I don't know. Is there anything in the Old Testament that's applicable to me? And I would say, if it's applicable to Jesus, it's probably ap- applicable to us. So there you have it, the first five books of the Bible. Genesis tells us of the beginning of everything, including the nation of Israel. Exodus relates to the organization of the law, the Jews into a nation, and the giving of the law. Leviticus tells us, uh, as a people, how we're to worship God. Numbers gives the story of wanderings of Israel, and Deuteronomy relates to the final preparation of going into the promised land. There are five incredibly important and interesting passages of Scripture that you never knew you wanted to read. And I hope that there's something of an appetite that, that causes you to, to maybe begin again, if not begin for the first time, reading the Word of God. We'll tackle the, the next set of books next week for those of you who want to come back to class. And we'll find out what happens when they enter into the promised land. And here's the spoiler alert. It's an absolute catastrophe. It's a mess. Uh, just like all of us when we receive grace.